I'd like to talk this evening about this particular form of practice that we do here and to look at the possibilities, the depth of it. The practice that we engage in here is one that is called Vipassana or insight meditation. And insight is a word that tends to become something of a cliché. You know, people say that they practice insight and the word is thrown around somewhat loosely and often not really having a very deep understanding of really what the insight part is all about. What are we trying to have insight into? Is insight something that you can practice? Is it something that you can sit down and practice and get better at having insights? And what kind of insight is important anyway? What kind of insight is significant for us? I think for most of us, insight implies understanding. And understanding for us also implies change. We probably anticipate that through the insight we arrive at in our practice, there'll be both inner and outer change. Despite being cautioned not to, time and time again, not to have expectations of meditation, most people when they come to practice, come to meditation practice, do indeed have some expectations. And so they also, we also tend to have expectations of insight because the practice that we do here is, after all, only a vehicle for understanding, for developing insight. We expect, realistically and naturally enough, both inner and outer change. We don't practice, do this in order to stay the same. We don't do retreats, hoping that at the end of the retreat we'll leave exactly the same as that we began. We expect changes in our way of seeing, changes within ourselves. We we expect, too, that those changes will be positive changes. We hope that through the vehicle of our practice or through the vehicle of insight, that perhaps we'll be able to move from confusion to clarity, from a state of conflict to a state of wholeness. Perhaps we anticipate that we'll be able to move from a place of disharmony or disconnection to a place within ourselves and the world where there's a greater harmony and a deeper sense of connection. And in those changes that we hope are going to take place, Insight seems to be a very important key in bringing those changes about. Insight seems to be an essential ingredient in making those shifts and leaps within ourselves and within our lives. Most of us have had enough experience in the world and also sufficient disillusionment also in our lives and disappointment to be able to clearly see that outer change, although it is entirely valid and entirely relevant many times in our lives, 
that outer change in itself is not sufficient to bring about the quality of freedom, the quality of peace, the quality of meaning that we seek for. And most of us have followed the avenue many times in our lives of rearranging our worlds and reordering our worlds, hoping that that constant rearranging and reordering is going to bring about the peace or the clarity or harmony we feel is important, only to find that it is really not always enough, that it simply doesn't touch us deeply enough inwardly to radically change our way of seeing. And when we've gone through that a number of times in our lives, then I feel we do turn our attention more inwardly. And we turn our attention inwardly with the intention of deepening in insight, deepening in understanding. And we sometimes then learn to regard or come to regard insight as being some sort of magical key some sort of magical formula that perhaps we'll sit down and we'll have these very enlightening pieces of information come to us. And through those very enlightening pieces of information, we may come to experience radical change. And this is what I feel we need to look at. Is insight sufficient? Does it really have that magical kind of power to bring about immediate transformation? And what kind of insight is even really important to us? What kind of insight do we even need to look for or seek for in our practice? In this particular practice, which is just one form, and I stress it's one form amongst many forms of insight meditation, the understanding that we seek to develop is in two primary areas. One of the areas of insight which is important in this practice is what I would refer to as being the whole range of relative insights. Part of that is personal insight. Understanding our kind of personal reality, understanding who we are as an individual, coming into a clearer and closer sense of connection with what it is that moves us inwardly, what it is that pushes us, what it is that molds us, the various tendencies, patterns, states of mind that tend to have a strong influence on our way of being and our way of seeing. Personal insight includes the whole area of our understanding clearly, with great clarity, our own personal histories, the force and the play of conditioning, understanding our present experience, the makeup of who we are as an individual and all that comprises our individuality, understanding our way of perceiving in the present, The purpose of that personal understanding, that self-understanding, that self-knowledge is to bring a greater sense of clarity and wisdom inwardly. It's to allow ourselves to see inwardly without judgment, without being, uh, without prejudice, without constantly distorting our vision of who we are with our projections, our likes and our dislikes, our memories and our images. 
the purpose of that insight is to bring a greater sense of balance in our own inner ecology, a sense of balance within our own being. Within that whole area of relative insight too is that whole area of understanding which lies beyond the boundaries of our personal realities. You might refer to it as being kind of universal insight, universal understanding, an understanding of the very kind of laws of existence that we all share birth and death, loss and separation, understanding the nature of change, the nature of impermanence, the nature of things constantly undergoing change within our lives, understanding the, the source of dissatisfaction, what discontent actually is, the way that it's created not just in our personal realities, but the actual forces of consciousness that create those ripples of discontent wherever they arise. Part of that understanding too is really involved and engaged in understanding this whole notion or nature of self, which appears in different guises within the confines of personal realities, and yet which is a theme which goes through each and every individual reality. The purpose of developing that kind of understanding, which doesn't relate just to our personal being, but which relates to all of life, is again transformation. It's to free us of pain. It's to free us of conflict inwardly, to allow us to open inwardly and to open our own hearts because surely we can see that to truly understand the nature of change, the nature of impermanence on a very deep level would mean a substantial amount of letting go in our lives, would mean that the tendency to cling and to hold on to things would be so drastically minimized to understand the nature of suffering and the causes of suffering, the way that it's created, also offers us the possibility of radical change and and a deep access to well-being. Because surely we can see that if we can understand the nature and the cause of discontent, we also begin to have the possibilities of stepping out of that pattern of creating and being lost within dissatisfaction. Surely we can see too the possibilities that are offered to us through a deep insight into the transparency of this sense of self, the sense of I, the solidity of it. Surely we can see that if that is really the insubstantiality of it is seen so clearly, how that would mean too the dropping away of so much of the defensiveness, the aggressiveness, the armoring and the withdrawing that can again play such a dominant and strong role in our lives. To understand oneself is to accept oneself. To understand deeply one's personal reality is to accept oneself and to hold within that understanding the possibility of transformation. To truly understand the characteristics, the nature of existence in a very clear way 
offers us the possibility of living in a real spirit of freedom and of wholeness in our lives. And perhaps we can just glimpse the depth of openness, the depths of love and compassion that would be available to us if our lives are not confined by fear and by defensiveness and by aggressiveness. And so the direction of insight is always to liberate, is always to bring about a quality of freedom, a sense of freedom inwardly and within our way of seeing. There's a whole other level of insight or a whole other dimension of insight, which is also very much the heart of this practice. It is the insight into the nature of the unconditioned, seen into the nature of reality, the nature of truth. You know, when you read anything in spirituality, always there is the thread running through whatever we read, whatever we listen to. There is the thread of mystical insight which is stressed again and again. And at times, you know, we can seem to be so much struggling with our issues and our conflicts and doing this and doing that that we can f- or tend to come to refer to or relate to such concepts as enlightenment or awakening just as being kind of good ideas, you know, nice ideas, but they seem to have little to do with our personal realities. And yet this is truly the heart of this practice, to really enable us to see that mystical vision, mystical insight is the heart of our own being, and that this practice is a way of giving us access to that quality of mystical vision, of deep liberating insight. Practicing meditation is one way, and again I stress it's only one way, of entering into the path of insight. In this practice, we cultivate attention and we cultivate sensitivity. The attention and the focus that we cultivate is not an end in itself. You know, there is nothing inherently virtuous or liberating in being aware of one's breath. And being aware of one's breath or being able to be clear in perceiving one's breath is not something that necessarily qualifies you for a great deal in life, obviously. And yet being with the breath, learning to cultivate attention, learning to cultivate sensitivity, what we're actually doing on a deeper level in that is creating a certain kind of environment within ourselves. We're creating through attention and through the application of sensitivity an inner environment of openness, of sensitivity, of clarity, of being fully present. That is an inner environment which actually is conducive to insight. And the practice of meditation, I feel, in a very real way, could be described as a way of cultivating an environment which is receptive to insight, which is receptive to understanding. It is not that the practice actually produces insight, 
but rather I feel we create an environment within ourselves which is receptive to deepening and understanding. When we sit, the very simplicity of doing that, in that simplicity, all that we do when we sit is that we meet ourselves. And our practice is really concerned with nothing more than being totally clear and sensitive to the actual quality of that meeting. The whole area of personal insight, self-knowledge, self-understanding, is very important in terms of deepening in meditation. Understanding self-knowledge is, I feel, a direct path to self-acceptance. And self-acceptance is, I feel, an essential ingredient in deepening in this practice. It's not at all a passive kind of acceptance, you know, where we draw all manner of conclusions about ourselves. Oh, I see that I'm an angry person and I accept it. Or I see I'm greedy and I accept my greediness. Or I accept my defensiveness. It's not that kind of passivity Rather, it's a clear perception of what is actually taking place within ourselves. That is the quality of acceptance, an inner relationship that's free of denial, free of suppression, and free of avoidance. That's the quality of acceptance, I feel, that this practice is primarily concerned with. That acceptance plays a very important role, not only in our meditation, but also in our lives. Think of what happens when that acceptance is not present. Its absence, the absence of acceptance, is something that colors every area of our lives, every relationship, and it also colors our relationship to the very moment itself. When there's a lack of acceptance, our very relationship to the present moment is distorted by its absence. When there isn't that quality of clear connection, of clear acceptance, our relationship to the present moment, to ourselves, to other people, is instead colored by qualities of denial, qualities of avoidance. When acceptance is not present, essentially we find ourselves at war, in a state of struggle, in a state of battling, a struggle and a war that can take place in our inner relationship and take place within our relationship to the moment. And that struggle, based on avoidance, based on denial, has some very clear manifestations. So often it manifests itself in the number of shoulds that we find characterizes our relationships inwardly and outwardly, what we should be experiencing, how other people should be, how I should be, the ideals and the expectations that we place upon ourselves, that being the ideal mother, the ideal father, the ideal parent, the ideal partner, the ways in which we can place those demands upon ourselves demands about what should be happening, what we should be experiencing, who we should be. The conflict between what is and what should be is a conflict that keeps us endlessly busy. In that conflict between, or the conflict created between what is and should be, out of that conflict 
is born so much of the desire to modify, to manipulate, to control, to order, to alter our experience in the moment and our inner experience. And instead of change coming about based upon acceptance, we seek to bring about change based upon what we think should be. And then so often our efforts to manipulate and our efforts to alter the present moment prove to be so endlessly futile. We have the ideas and we seek for them, but because we're not really connected with the way things are, our attempts to modify so often end up with feelings of disillusionment, feelings of failure, feelings of disappointment, feelings of of tension and anger towards others and towards ourselves. That gap that exists between what is and what should be often spells a great deal of difficulty for us. Because of that gap, we experience those extremes of swings that we can become so familiar with in our minds. You know, we feel elated and excited and exhilarated and happy when our experience of ourselves, our experience of another person, conforms to the way we think we should be or another person should be. We feel wonderfully happy with ourselves, with others, with the moment. And think of the opposite that we also experience in terms of despair and depression and anger and grief when somehow we fail or others fail to meet up to our models of how we should be. And so often we find in our lives constantly swinging between those extremes of ups and downs, of elation and depression, based upon that struggle, that conflict between what is and what should be. When that struggle exists, so often we tend to create many goals because we are not satisfied with the way things are. And sometimes it's a mature dissatisfaction. There's one level of dissatisfaction which is a totally mature dissatisfaction. When we see that the way of our lives, our way of being inwardly, is one which is constantly serving to create discontent and undermine well-being and cause confusion. There's another level of dissatisfaction, which is really a quite an immature dissatisfaction. It's that constant desire to manipulate the world to conform to our own images and our own models. It's a constant searching and a constant reaching for something other to alleviate the satisfaction or to cover it up rather than understanding it. And so we create all these goals about what we should want to experience. And so focused do we become upon those goals which invariably exist apart from where we are and who we are. So focused do we become on those goals, that we find it increasingly difficult to actually attune ourselves to what is in this moment, to what is actually taking place in this moment. We also forget in that constant reaching towards something other that our greatest teacher is actually this moment itself. 
and that all that we actually need for transformation lies within this moment and within who we are because we have the capacity to be aware, we have the capacity to be awake, we have the capacity to question. We can't always see that because we are so busy reaching towards the future, towards our expectations, towards the goals that we create. In a very real way, the beginning of meditation is understanding this struggle between what is and what should be. In a very real way, that is the place that meditation actually begins. In understanding the conflict that's created through lack of attunement and acceptance, and also understanding what self-acceptance actually is. And in one way we could say that the beginning of meditation is actually the beginning of acceptance. When we begin in this practice, it's very simple. We cultivate attention. And yet we can see that it is extraordinarily difficult to do. It seems should be very straightforward. Focus on your breath, focus on the present moment. It seems that it should be an extraordinarily simple thing to do. Often we find how difficult it is to attune ourselves to what is. And often our efforts then seem to be involving a great deal of struggle and a great deal of trying. It is because of resistance, primarily because of resistance. You know, it is not as if we don't yearn for and wish for peace and for clarity and for harmony. Most of us, when we sit, that is our intention, to be at peace, to be clear, to be filled with rapport and connection. And yet clearly there's something else operating within ourselves that makes us really have that kind of choppiness and that lack of connection with the moment. And what it is is resistance. Resistance because of different reasons. Sometimes because we turn inwardly, and we would certainly like to have a particular kind of experience. We'd like to have a pleasant experience, a peaceful experience, a satisfying experience. And at times what happens when we turn inwardly is that we don't always find what we would like to find. We don't always find what we would like to find. And that discovery is to us a sense of disappointment. We discover that we turn inwardly and we find that our our sense of control is illusory. We want to predict the kind of experience we have. You know, once, um, some years ago, I had a woman who came to me from a very, um, very difficult and violent home life that was filled with tension. And she came and she said, you know, I really need to meditate and want to learn to meditate because I need peace. That's all I want, is I want to be peaceful. So I said, fine. And so I talked a little bit about meditation and she went home and practiced it. And two weeks later she came back just filled with a, a sense of rage towards me, towards the practice, towards everything. And she said, you know, I did what you told me to. And I discovered there was all this anger and all this rage and all this conflict. And that's not what I wanted to meditate for. I wanted to be peaceful. No one said I wanted to be aware. Hmm? And our practice 
is one where at times our field of experience and our inner experience is not what we want. And because of that, resistance comes. We find ourselves turning away from it and trying to deny it. With trust, with inner trust, we sustain this practice. I mean, for many different reasons we sustain this practice. Sometimes out of desperation, sometimes because we don't know what else to do. Sometimes based on memory, because in the past we've had certain experiences in it. And yet I feel also that apart from those motivations and sustaining the practice, there is also a certain level of trust, an intuitive trust in our own potential and our own sense of possibilities in this practice. And through that trust, the practice does deepen and changes begin to take place. And one of the most important insights that comes in this practice is the seeing that we do not have to be a victim. And that is a radically transforming insight. Neither do we have to be a conqueror. Because again, so often that role of being the victim is one that is all too familiar to us. Feeling ourselves to be overwhelmed by our emotions, overwhelmed by our mind states, overwhelmed by our thoughts. And because we have that relationship inwardly, of course we find that we also have that relationship with the world many times that we feel overwhelmed by other people, that we feel overwhelmed by our children, that we feel overwhelmed by life situations, that we feel powerless and helpless and disempowered. Our practice, I feel, begins to bring some insight into that basic pattern, simply because I feel the practice is one that when it's sustained and deepens, you begin to have access to your own inner resources. You begin to be able to cultivate an environment inwardly where there is spaciousness, where there is balance, where there is equanimity, where there is the capacity to accommodate things that were previously overpowering and overwhelming. We suddenly discover we can embrace those very same things. There comes a sense of that personal empowerment inwardly, that that trust in oneself and that trust in one's own resources and in stepping out of that pattern of being a victim of our own minds, our own mental states, our own conditioning, we also begin to find that that insight is one that extends itself into our lives, that we also don't have to be a victim of others, a victim of other people's expectations, other people's power, other people's tension. So practice deepens, we also begin to have glimpses of the benefits of the practice. We begin to have glimpses of what it actually means to be at peace, what it actually means to be fully sensitive, what it actually feels like to be deeply connected with the moment. We begin to experience, too, that our practice has its valleys and peaks But I feel in the beginning of meditation practice, we tend only to be interested in the peaks. You know, the times of highs and the times when it's great and the times of peace and the times of excitement. And that's often what sustains us. And yet I feel as the practice deepens, we also begin to appreciate how much richness that there is actually in the valleys. 
that this practice is not just about getting to the peaks, but it's also beginning to appreciate how much understanding that actually lies in the valleys. Because the valleys that we experience in our practice, the valleys that we experience in our lives, reveal to us the areas in which we create conflict, the areas in which we become lost, the areas which we need to understand more deeply. Sometimes the valleys are created through holding, through clinging, through denial, through holding on to the pleasant, through holding on to the unpleasant. Sometimes the valleys are created through trying to create and construct personal realities which we then find to be empty. By staying with those valleys, by not avoiding them, by not resisting them, but just beginning to be clearly present in the valleys instead of seeing them as something to get over or to get out of, we begin to see how much insight is held within those valleys. We begin to understand how suffering is created. And in beginning to understand the very process of suffering, the very process of creating dissatisfaction, there's a possibility of totally stepping out of that process. And the insight is the first step. And the level of personal insight, seeing is the first step. There isn't a thing, such a place as enlightened retirement, where you have insights and then you don't have to see anymore and you don't have to practice anymore and you don't have to understand anymore. Seeing in a very real way is the very first step. You know, sometimes... In, we begin to see in our practice, you know, have deep insights into tendencies and patterns and conditioning. And sometimes the very seeing in itself, it's very powerful and it's very liberating. But at times we get lost in the, in the excitement over those insights. And how many times people leave retreats and we've heard the song and we've heard the story that, you know, I seem to have lost my insights. You know, that it seemed so clear when I was on a retreat and then I go back out in the world and the same things are coming up and I'm repeating the same patterns, I'm repeating the same tendencies. And at times when that happens, we might find ourselves doubting in the authenticity of our insights or doubting in our practice. And yet I feel the actual question that it's really important to ask ourselves is how much are we willing to live in accord with our insights? And this is, to me, very much the key in this practice. It's not that we get this little portfolio of insights, you know, that we store and collect. The seeing is just the first step. And it's our willingness to live in accord with those insights that's truly freeing. And if it's very important to appreciate that insight is only liberating if it is applied. And sometimes that's a difficult part for us to integrate. You know, we're very aware of kind of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, that there is suffering, there's a cause for suffering, and there's an end to suffering. And the first three are wonderfully attractive, especially the third. You know, there's an end to suffering. And then comes the fourth, that there's actually a path to its end. And at times, cultivating that path of insight 
are cultivating the path of peace does mean being very, very willing and very, very inspired to continue to question and inquire into every area of our lives. Sometimes applying that insight means letting go of pleasure, means letting go of things that we use to reinforce us or to support us. And yet it's so important that if we treasure peace, that we also have to treasure the path to peace. There is a shift that takes place in meditation practice where there is firstly a concern with our personal realities because that's what we encounter when we sit. And yet there is also a dimension to this practice when through the development of this practice there comes such a spaciousness and such a clarity inwardly that it has the effect actually of expanding the consciousness. It has clearly the effect of expanding the horizons of our consciousness. And in that expansion, we find that the whole le- that although our scene incorporates the level of personal reality, that it also extends far beyond that. And as the practice deepens, we begin to see on a moment-to-moment level the truth of impermanence, the causes of suffering, the insubstantiality of self. And the insights on that level of practice aren't just about me or mine or my stuff. It's this much deeper, deeper, expanded way of seeing. Through that development, there comes about many changes inwardly. There's a real minimizing of clinging, a minimizing of holding, one really begins to see the insubstantiality of so many of the bubbles that arise within the consciousness. And in that letting go, the capacity to let go of things comes very organically and with a certain sweetness because we really see that letting go is really not an effort that we do in order to get somewhere, that actually letting go is most times an act of compassion for ourselves. And that letting go is most times an act of compassion for our world because we truly begin to see how much conflict is created through holding and through clinging. In that scene, I feel the, the sense of our heart opening really deepens because there's not the defenses, there's not the holding, and there emerges in that openness a deep sense of compassion, a deep sense of loving kindness because there is connection. There's truly a deep sense of oneness and connectedness, and that oneness and connectedness is the root the organic root of loving-kindness, of compassion, of the willingness to extend ourselves beyond the boundaries of our personal realities. Through the deepening of the practice that comes also clearly into being a deep sense of stillness within ourselves, a deep sense of silence which is not the absence of movement and is not the absence of noise. Rather, it is a place within ourselves, within our very way of seeing, which is still and which accommodates and embraces movement, accommodates and embraces noise. 
And that stillness and silence which develops in the practice really is a quality of grace. It's a real quality of grace in that. It is like a benediction. It's like a blessing. And in that quality of grace, there's not the sense that I need to do this, that I need to let go of this. It's a deep understanding of what it means simply to abide in stillness. And I feel in that abiding in grace, in that abiding in silence within ourselves, there is the possibility of being touched by a deep understanding of the unconditioned, of the nature of reality, the nature of truth, and the nature of oneness. This practice has its own development, and it's not that we practice insight. Rather, our practice has really lends itself simply to stillness, simply to silence. Our practice teaches us how to have access to that quality of stillness within our own being, a quality of stillness in which we can embrace the whole world, in which from which emerges a real love, compassion, an understanding of connectedness. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings abide in awareness. <laughs> 